Thanks for listening to another episode of Project Zion. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts the Restoration offers for today's world. Project Zion is sponsored by the Latter-day Seekers team from Community of Christ. Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Katie Langston, and I am absolutely delighted today to bring you a very special guest, uh, Dr. Priscilla Eppinger. And we have a fascinating conversation prepared for you today on ecofeminism and theology and new ways to think about God and feminism and the very world that we live in and all of creation. So it should be uh, a conversation with a lot of big concepts, but that are vitally important, especially right now facing ecological crisis in our world. So welcome, Priscilla. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be part of this project. Oh, thank you. Now, before we dive right in, let's take just a moment and maybe you could introduce a little bit about yourself, who you are, your background and work, and so on. Okay, well, my religious background is American Baptist. I am American Baptist by birth and by choice. I'm ordained as an American Baptist clergywoman and served as a pastor of the First Baptist Church of Plymouth, Massachusetts for several years, and then was on the staff of the North Shore Baptist Church in Chicago. From there, I went to Graceland University and Community of Christ Seminary, And for 14 years, I was a professor of theology and religious studies at Community of Christ Seminary and Graceland University. Just recently, in August of 2016, I accepted the position of executive director of the American Baptist Historical Society. And so that is my my current position, but I continue to do some work in theology and for several years now, one of my real passions has been ecological theology and particularly looking at ecology and theology through an ecofeminist lens. Wonderful. Well, we're so excited to have you and glad that uh, glad that we have the connection through Graceland so that you could be on the podcast today. Yes. Why don't we talk a little bit about that? So what, you know, when you talk when you say that you're interested in looking at ecology and theology through an ecofeminist lens, Let's break that down a little bit for our listeners and discuss uh, for a moment, you know, what ecofeminism is and and then how theology and ecology, uh, what what those two concepts might have to do with each other. Ecology, when I talk about ecology, I'm using it really in kind of a, a biological sense, and that is meaning simply the re- that ecology refers to the relationship between an organism and its environment. And in a few minutes, I'll talk a little more about why, why it's important to think in those terms. But, but basically, you know, the relationship between, in this case, human beings and our environment and how we interact and how we think of ourselves in our environment, what our relationship is. Feminism is a perspective, a worldview that critiques the system of patriarchy as oppressive and unjust. Now, when I mean when I talk about patriarchy, what I mean is an organizational structure that our, that Western society is is really constructed on, and it's an organizational structure that's based on a hierarchical dualism. So, I hope that people can hear me that when I talk about patriarchy, and when most feminists refer to patriarchy, we are not referring to men, or we're not referring to individual men or specific men, nor are we saying that it's men's men's fault that there is injustice in the world or that women are treated badly or something like that, but rather we're saying that, that our entire culture embraces this idea of a dualistic, um, a dualistic view of the world such that things are sort of divided into two categories, 
that would be the dualistic part, and that this is a hierarchical dualism, meaning that one of those categories is generally seen to be or assumed to be superior to the other. And so those, those dualities that much of our culture just assumes to be part of the way things are, are things like male-female, that we assume that human beings come in two types. You're either male or you're female. And but when a baby is born, that's one of the first questions that's asked. And that's one of the first determinations that is made. You know, is it a boy or a girl? But our culture also, for hundreds of years, or thousands of years actually, has functioned with the idea that being male is inherently superior to being female. Mm -hmm. So it's so it's better to be male. There are certain privileges that come with being male. And so there's a kind of a, that, that assumed superiority. But male and female are not the only dichotomies in a patriarchal society. We also have we have dichotomies like human and non human huh. with the presumption that human is superior. That we're with that we are we are better than, smarter than, more advanced than the non-human beings in the world. We also find certainly within Western culture a sort of racial dichotomy that's usually expressed as white and non-white, and we have a culture that privileges whiteness over color. And we can see that usually expressed or termed as racism, but it really is that that hierarchical dualism that presumes that being white or the closer you are to white, the more privileges you are accorded and and, and there's a kind of inherent superiority that's assumed there. One of the things then that one of the ways that feminism perceives these hierarchical dualisms is to notice that there's also a presumed dualism between culture and nature. Culture meaning, um, in its most simplistic form, everything that human beings create, and nature being everything that human beings have not created. And, and we privilege and sort of presume superiority of culture of civilization, the things that we invent, that we build, that we create, are, are we treat them and we, and we have an attitude that that's better than whatever simply exists in nature. You know, we take it and we improve on it. We don't all just sit on tree stumps. We use the lumber and it's built into furniture that we, that we consider better than sitting on tree stumps and lying on beds of straw. Okay. I noticed with mm -hmm. that with that dichotomy that you mentioned there, sort of the mm -hmm. dichotomy between culture and nature, it's almost as if we see human beings as being outside of nature somehow then. That Exactly. If, if our culture is something other than nature, then we don't think of ourselves as a part of it. Right. And that's part of that's part of an ecofeminist critique, and um, and that comes into play when when we talk in a few minutes about more on the theological aspect. To me, that's a really key concept that that we need to think about changing. It's the way that that relationship. That's the ecology part. What is our relationship with our environment? And if we consider that we are we are somehow external to it or separate from it, that, that then signifies a different kind of relationship than if we assume that we are integral to nature or part of that which surrounds us, our environment. A further dichotomy that we see, a kind of hierarchical dualism, has to do with not just culture and nature, but then the idea you know, nature is always tangible. So there's a kind of dichotomy between the intellectual or the spiritual and the physical world. And the presumption that you know, the spirit is 
a, a, a higher plane of existence than the body. Right. And that the intellect is more reliable than feelings, for example. There's, there's that dichotomy of the spiritual and the intellectual over the tangible, the physical, the body. And one of the things that in a patriarchal-based culture, one of the things that we see then is a kind of equating of all those superior things and all of the inferior things. That is that maleness and whiteness and humanness and culture or civilization and intellect all presume to somehow belong to each other and that femaleness and non-whiteness and nature and physicality get associated with each other and kind of equated and so and so we we can then start seeing the relationship between or the interrelationship between some of these dualisms that if it's assumed that maleness is superior to femaleness and that being human is superior to being non-human and that culture is superior to nature, then we start seeing a kind of parallel between the attitudes and the behaviors of the superior or presumed superior entities toward the inferior entities. And so that's, that brings us then to the, that eco-feminism. Uh-huh. That is the, an analytical lens. It's both an analytical lens and an activist movement, mm. which perceives all forms of op- oppression as being linked and intertwined. And so by all forms of, of oppression, I mean, yes, gender, male, female, discrimination based on sex, but also race, economic class, social status, that, that these are all intertwined forms of oppression. And so an ecofeminist analytical lens perceives this, the, the interconnectedness of these different oppressions and posits that working for justice requires addressing all oppressions. That is, if we if we're really concerned, or kind of a critique sometimes, is that those who are only concerned about discrimination against women are missing the point because we won't be able to really bring justice for women if we ignore what's happening toward our ecosystems, or if we're concerned about racial oppression, but if we ignore the way that we treat our ecosystems, we're not going to effectively address the problem of racism. It's also, so an ecofeminist perspective also posits that those of us who are concerned about ecological problems, ecological degradation, will not be fully successful in countering or addressing those problems if we ignore the human problems of gender-based oppression and racial oppression and oppression based on economic class and so on. It's a very systemic way of looking uh, of looking at things. Exactly. That, that these, exactly. These things aren't taking place in silos. That it's it's. I mean, it's intersectional, but it it includes not just human oppressions, but then also the way that those um, are impacted by or have impact upon like the environment and 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 the world itself. Right. Exactly. So it really is a, a holistic and systemic view of reality. Yeah. So then to lay that over onto theology, right. because we're talking about ecofeminist theology, there there are plenty of ecofeminists who are not theologians. Sure. There are plenty of ecofeminists who have no religious identification at all, right. and, or if anything, some of them are anti-religion, perceiving religion to be a lot of the problem. Right both with, you know, in, in multiple forms of oppression. But those of us who do identify ourselves as theologians, or in particular, in my case, as a Christian theologian, mm-hmm. we consider theology to be an aspect of discerning God's will. Mm-hmm. And here, I'd like, to, I'd like to read just a couple of sentences 
from a book called Life Abundant by Sally McFay because she she has put very well the way that I'd like for us to think about theology today. McFay writes, the purpose of theology is to glorify God by reflecting on how we might live better on the earth. Theology is about thinking, but it is not primarily an intellectual activity. It is a practical one, so that we might live better, more appropriately, in the world. For Christians, this right living occurs when we bring our wills into line with God, when we live within the divine ordering of reality. Theology, then, is an aspect of discerning God's will and, hence, cannot be done apart from ethics and spirituality. Thinking, doing, and praying belong together. And then she goes on to say, we can neither praise God, because she says that the purpose of theology is to glorify God by reflecting on how we might live better on the earth. We can neither praise God nor love the world if we have not thought through who God is and how we should love the world. Yeah. And so that's, that's where theology comes in. It, it's that thinking through of who God is, who we believe God is, who we claim God is, and how then do we love the world? How should we love the world? What is our relationship with the rest of God's creation? And so, you know, so, so considering theology being, yes, an intellectual activity, but one that has very practical, uh, very practical outcomes, and put that together with an ecofeminist lens that perceives the, the interconnectedness of various forms of oppression and takes an, an activist kind of approach to say it's not, just, it's not enough just to recognize oppression, but then we've got to do something about it. Right. And theology is part of the thinking through what it is we need to do. And so that's, that's the perspective that I really take in my own theological work. Wow, that's super, super interesting and super exciting. Big questions, but vitally important ones, I think. Right. Talk a little bit about why you think it matters that we think about our ecological impact. I think for a lot of our listeners, and even for me, the idea of wanting to uh, dismantle systems of oppression is not new. Intersectionality itself might not even be new, but why is the ecological angle on this such an important part specifically? Because that might be a new piece for some of the folks who are listening to us today. I think that our ecological impact and the impact that we are having on ecosystems is important. I mean, first of all, if one takes purely an anthropocentric view, that is to say that human beings really are superior to non-humans and we should do what's best for us. It doesn't really matter what happens to other creatures in the world. Even from that standpoint, if we consider that scientific evidence is that the ecological damage harms the resources that support human life so that ultimately we are endangering our own species, the survival of our own species, if we don't care about the world we live in. And that's that. So from a purely anthropocentric, sort of self-centered right. view, we should care because while I assume that I will not be around personally when the full effects of climate change strike, right. but if I care about our children and our children's children and their children, if we, go, if we look forward a few generations, and try and consider what their lives will be like, if we care about those people, our, again, our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so on, then we really ought to care. From a, from a more theological standpoint, I would say that we should be considering our ecological impact because if we believe that God created the world, then what by if we're doing things, if we're living in a way that damages that world, we are effectively undoing God's work. And to me, that's a that's a pretty serious charge to make against humankind. Yeah. And specifically as Christians, that Christian theology 
claims that God became incarnate in Jesus Christ, that God cared enough about the world to come and live within the world, that we should love what God loves. One of the verses that just about every Christian can quote, and an awful lot of non-Christians, yes. is John 3.16, right? Uh-huh. For God so loved the world that God sent an only begotten Son. I mean, it's not God so loved. I mean, the, the, the Gospel of John does not say God so loved people. Yeah, right. It says God so loved the world. Just from a theological perspective, we should be caring about what God cares about. We should be loving what God loves. And that means we need to pay attention to the world around us. Why is it, do you think, that some of the people who are the least inclined to be thoughtful about the environment are Western, privileged, wealthy Christians? Where where did we go wrong <laughs> theologically? Why is it so anthropocentric? And it, it seems to me that what you're saying here isn't necessarily new. It seems like perhaps in Christian tradition or in scripture, there's plenty there to emphasize to us our interconnection with creation and our responsibility for it. What's happened to make that get lost that we kind of have to rediscover it now? Katie, I think the the simple answer to that is simply sin. And I I don't mean to be simplistic or superficial, but it's far easier to explain what has happened than why it has happened. Rosemary Ruther, a feminist, eco-feminist theologian, has written a lot about on feminist theology, developing feminist theologies, and then looking specifically at ecology, and has done a lot of, Ruther has done a lot of research looking at the, the historical development of some of these ideas, and she finds traces of patriarchy and ecological damage that go back to three or four millennia before Christ. So these are very ancient ideas. They're not limited to Western Europe or Christianity. So it's not, it's not only the Christian tradition and it's not only the Western tradition where we find this really patriarchal system, but we certainly do find it very strongly within those cultures that are predominantly influenced by Christianity. Mm. Certainly, some of the ancient Greek and Roman ideas were very much based in uh, considering the spirit and the intellect to be superior to the body. Uh You have ideas, even among some groups of early Christians, you had the idea that the soul was eternal and that living on earth was, the soul was kind of trapped in this physical body, and therefore death is a sort of liberation. Mm -hmm. And if that's how one views reality, then of course we're we're going to denigrate not only the human body, but other bodies and, and other aspects of the material world. If this is simply a place where we're trapped and we're trying to get free of it. I find that view antithetical to the idea that God loved the world so much that God chose to to become flesh and live among us. But it is a very ancient idea. We also see a real shift in in about the 17th century at the time of the scientific revolution Mm -hmm. that there had been, certainly in Western culture, Western European culture, there was very much the idea of the universe as or the world being viewed as a living being is more of an organic model of the universe. And nature, writ large, you know, had powers that were not understood. And so the world and, and nature were termed mother nature, where we where we already see linguistically a tie between femaleness and nature. Right. Right? But that, but that Mother Nature's powers were both feared and revered. There were just things that couldn't be explained, and so you paid attention and you worked with nature, 
and you know you're a little afraid of what the you know what the next season might bring or might not bring when you're an agriculturally based society right. kind of storms there might be and that sort of thing with the scientific revolution there was a shift from viewing nature as more organic and alive and being a kind of a you know, again fearing a little bit as well as being in awe of the powers of nature well mysterious and, and powerful really i mean Right. The idea that if there's drought or a flood or <laughs> and it, none of these things that we can control, that we have exactly. to be in awe. And yeah, I think that's what's going yes. on there. Well, the scientific revolution really shifted that view to a more mechanistic model of the universe, of thinking of, of the way that nature works is more like a machine. And when when the universe, when the world is viewed as a machine, it's more logical to try and control that machine. And it's not enough just to know how something works, but then we want, we want to be able to control what happens. So I think that, that that shift in the way that the world was viewed four or 500 years ago, that, that shift took place, that has compounded much of our the, the long-held notions of the material world being inferior to the spiritual and intellectual. And now if our, our goal is to control it and really be in charge, the effects that human beings have had on our ecosystems has really been compounded. Wow. When you put it that way, it's so interesting to think about what something that you said earlier when you talked about how pure and simple this has been if you think about if from a theological perspective you have this idea that in the incarnation god enters the world and takes upon god's self like materiality right enters mm-hmm. enters nature in this way then to imagine human beings trying to control nature is almost like human beings trying to control god which seems to me to be, or to become God ourselves, you know, which seems to me it's always one of the uh, first and most primal <laughs> sins that we are tempted to commit. That's right. That's, that, and certainly we've got stories in Scripture, I mean, multiple stories in Scripture, that posit that sort of temptation, the temptation to be God, become God, be like God, um, as something that we, we succumbed to. and. And over and over again, I think we see the the ill effects of us trying to trying to play God mm-hmm. or mistake ourselves for God. Mm-hmm. Wow. But I think that that then becomes part of the ways that we think about the world, our our Christian relationship with our environment falls into line with that way of thinking. A lot of and, and this is the, the the model that I would critique and want to shift us away from is a model that many Christians, very ecologically minded Christians, have embraced, and that is the idea of stewardship. Stewardship is, you know, the idea of management. Yeah. A steward manages the property of somebody else. Right. So I think that that's where it's appealing to Christians because it reiterates the idea that the world doesn't belong to us. This is ultimately God's world, God's creation, Mm -hmm. and we're simply managing it. But one of the flaws in that idea is that merely saying that we are stewards is not inherently positive because management can be good or bad. I've I've had some shitty managers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Merely claiming to be a steward does not result in good management. Right. Absolutely. But what it does is continue that idea that we are superior to nature and and does put us in a kind of a godlike position with you know, in relation to the rest of creation. It upholds the dichotomy that, that you spoke about at the very beginning that you were critiquing. Right. The idea of stewardship really is hierarchical. Yeah. Places us outside of that which we are managing. I, I would also say that there's 
a kind of contradiction in claiming environmental stewardship because, again, by definition, an environment is something that surrounds one. So when we talk about our environment, that, that's a very anthropocentric um, perspective to take because we're, we're placing humans in the center of things and we're talking about our environment, that which surrounds us. We tend to forget that every living creature has an environment. But we, when we talk about our environment, we're making ourselves the center. If we're the center of the environment, it's hard to be a steward of that environment if a steward is somewhat, by definition, external to what the steward is managing and in a hierarchical position. Right. And then we manage the environment such that it fulfills what we want from it. Right, and particularly right. those who have the power to control the environment to the extent that that's possible. Yeah, okay. and we've often kind of out of that whole idea of stewardship, we've dropped the idea of accountability. Right. Absolutely. Because again, if the steward is not the owner, then the steward is accountable to the owner for what they've done. Right. And you know, we we often just kind of drop that whole that whole idea from this idea of environmental stewardship. But so instead, as theologically, if we're trying to think about what is our proper relationship as human beings, what is our proper place in the world? It's a question of, if you will, it's a question of ecology, the relationship between us as organisms and our environment. But it's also a question of theological anthropology. That is, what, what does it mean to be human? What is our proper place? And from a Christian perspective, I would want us to, to substitute for the idea of stewardship, to substitute a theology of incarnation. That, in, again, I'm, and I'm speaking as a Christian, and I'm speaking to, and to, to Christians, I'm not I'm not trying to say that this is the way that everybody else in the world would view their relationship with nature, with creation. Right. But as Christians, we have the ancient idea of Jesus Christ as fully human and fully divine. And the key ideas there are that if Christ was fully divine, then we look at Jesus Christ to get some idea of the nature of God. What is God like? How is God like? How does God relate with others and treat others? And the claim also that Jesus Christ was fully human is a way of saying that if we want to know what it really means to be human, then we look at Jesus Christ to see what it, what it means for us to live out the fullness of humanity. One of the key ideas that I find in the Christian scriptures is from the letter to the Philippians, it's an ancient, an ancient early Christian hymn, says, Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. The word for that idea is kenosis, the idea that Christ, that though he was God, emptied himself and chose to become something less than God for our sake. Right? The idea of, of self-givingness is termed kenosis, and that's the Greek term for it. So it's the term we use in theology. And to me, that's the proper place for a Christian theology to begin when we're trying to figure out what is our ecology? That is, what is our proper relationship with our environment? That if, if what it means to be fully human is to emulate Christ, what we see there is that, that self-givingness, the right. self-emptying. And that that then would be the way that we should be conceiving of ourselves. Again, I'm speaking now, now, now I'm speaking not only to us as Christians, but particularly to those of us who enjoy some place of privilege. Right. Yeah. 
Now, there are only a small number, actually a very small number, who enjoy every place of privilege. Race, gender, economic status, political power, and so on. That's a very small group of people. Most of us enjoy some kind of privilege. And I guess that's where I'm wanting us to pay attention. That if we take as our model of the fullness of humanity, Jesus Christ, who emptied himself, gave of himself for us, that that's then how we need to be considering ourselves in relation to others. And so the first thing that that we need to do in terms of shifting our way of thinking is to decenter ourselves. For one thing, it's not just us and the environment. We need to make sure we're thinking, we're talking about our environment, but my environment may not be the environment of the deer that are out in the woods. Or my environment is not the same thing as the environment of the polar bears. So we need to decenter ourselves as a human species, decenter ourselves as Westerners, as those who have some kind of privilege in terms of race, class, gender, and so on, and begin practicing kenosis. That is self-limitation, self-giving. And that that would really be our imitation of Jesus Christ. One that I find really interesting, you sent me a piece by Sally McVeigh's mm-hmm. Ecological Christology, just the T under the tablet. Um, mm-hmm. and I think, I don't know if we could link to the whole thing, but I'll certainly footnote it on the mm-hmm. blog so that those who might be able to to take a peek at it if they're interested mm-hmm. and read the whole thing, which they should. You should all read it. It's It's wonderful. One of the concepts that she brought up in that piece that I found paradigm shifting for me was Mm -hmm. a new way of thinking about abundance. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a sense in our culture that abundance is having more and more and more and more, Mm -hmm. more wealth, more things, more power. Mm-hmm. That the accumulation of those things is the abundant life, and the more of that right. that we have, the more we we live in abundance. Mm-hmm. And it seemed that the shift that she was trying to make was to help us think of abundance as having enough, <laughs> not right. not an excess, but intentionally limiting our excess and recognizing that which is enough. Right. So that others, so that we're not consuming the excess and hoarding it to ourselves, so but that so that others and the rest of the the created world can have enough for them as well. Yeah, and that's, and I think, in some ways, a lot of people picked up on that idea in terms of being anti-consumerist. Right. And there's certainly a lot of a lot of critique of a consumerist lifestyle lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I I mean I think that that really is key that abundance, abundant life does not mean lots of stuff. And you know, many of us again, I don't want to I don't want to be too simplistic, but many of us have that experience already. The letdown on Christmas afternoon. Yeah, right. When right. you're and, and 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 there's that letdown. You kind of had a a, a gluttony of stuff, right. and then sometimes there's the disappointment of oh, but I I didn't get what I really wanted, yeah. or yeah. or simply the realization that all this stuff doesn't doesn't really bring fulfillment or doesn't bring rich relationships. We're recording this right after Christmas, so maybe this is on my mind. But right. being with people that we love, and just having dare I say quality time. Is more significant than having lots of stuff. The more toys and the bigger house and the fancier car and the better vacation. So that's part of, I think, what we need to be not just thinking about, but then actually doing. Right. And that takes me back to to that that first thing that I read by McFaith, yeah. relating theology with ethics and spirituality. That theology is not just thinking about things but then actually doing something with what we thought about. Yeah. And with regards to ecology, 
it means that some of our, on an individual basis, some of our habits have to change, mm -hmm. that we've got to reduce what we use. And that means very, very specifically, that means driving less. It means using less energy when we set our thermostat, whether it's the air conditioning in the summertime or the heat in the winter, yep. that we need to be using less energy. It means changing some of the ways that we eat, specifically to eat less or even no meat, mm -hmm. because meat in our diet is one of the highest uses of energy, one of the highest uses of cropland and water and petrochemicals, and simply to, to to have and use less stuff. A lot of ecologically conscious people try to live by a, a sort of mantra of reduce, reuse, and recycle. Uh -huh. And I, I think that can be very helpful, especially when we remember that the first of those is reduce. Uh -huh. Right, the first thing is not recycle. So <laughs> the point is, don't don't go out and buy and use all the stuff that you want or you think you want because you can, you know, on the justification that, well, I'm going to recycle it right. because we've still used that much more, that, that many more resources. That the first thing is to reduce how much we're using and consuming. And the second is to reuse so that we're not just disposing of and buying more. And only thirdly, when when we've reduced our usage as much and we've reused everything we can, then to recycle it. So that's on you know on an individual level, those are some of the habits that we need to to change. But the ecological problems that we are collectively facing right now are of a a magnitude too great to be really affected or affected by individual habits alone. Huh. We also need to be working on a systemic level. There are, you know, there are decisions that we can't make. And by that I mean I I can reduce my energy level to a very, you know, minimal level. Right. I can set my heat at 62 degrees in the winter time. Right. I can set the air conditioner at 78 you know, something so that, that really I'm, I'm using very well, actually my personal choice is not to use air conditioning, oh, cool. but you get the point right. that we can, we can reduce, we can change our own habits. What I can't change is to determine where my electricity is coming from on the grid, right? right? The, the power that, that is required for the home I live in right. and its appliances and, and, not just comfort level, but right. basic what what have become basic necessities. Right. We don't get to choose individually whether that is you know coal powered electricity, right. natural gas, nuclear power, solar or wind energy. Those are not individual choices, but those are some <laughs> of the decisions that have to be made. And so that's where we've got to work on a systemic level to work together for political and economic policies and practices that relieve the oppression of others. Mm. That if this is about loving what God loves, and if this is about enacting justice, not only for ourselves, but for the whole world, right. then we've got to always be mindful of the systemic policies and practices that oppress or relieve the oppression of others. And so this is where, at the very beginning, you talked about it's it's more than just, you know, these are more than just theoretical concepts, but it's also an activist movement. Right. Mm. Are there specific resources that, that you might recommend to people who are interested in in getting involved on a on a more organized kind of systemic level, there are lots of ways to get involved, and there are lots of resources. Mm -hmm. I guess one thing I would say is that for for things not to be theoretical, yeah. they've they've got to be local. Ah. And I'm not 
I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved, say, in national or international movements. Those are important. But it's also important for us to be involved in our own local communities and to be aware of what's going on there. And in, you know, in each community, it's a different set of issues, whether it's a question of land use, whether it's a question of energy production, whether it's a question of deforestation. Each of these are, are local kinds of policies that any of us can learn about and get involved with in a, in a very hands-on kind of way in our own communities to make a difference right there where we are with specific issues. There are groups like a group called Interfaith Power and Light uh -huh. that works on energy policy and, and uh, ecological policies from, a, from religious perspectives. Uh -huh. There is an organization called Green Faith that is also an interreligious or multi-faith multi approach to ecology, and Green Faith, the organization, works specifically with congregations and houses of worship to help them, to help those congregations work on their own uh, multifaceted approach to ecology, from doing a, you know, an energy audit of the, you know, a church building or a temple or a synagogue, to thinking through their their religious education and the way that ecological concepts get integrated into that. So it's it's a, another good organization. Okay. And then there, you know, there are simply things like the Natural Resources Conservation Fund or the Sierra Club or, you know, other not specifically religious but very good working organizations that I would encourage people to, in a sense, find the specific thing that you care about in your community because there are there are so many concerns and so many ways to address those concerns. None of us can do it all. So for any of us, you know, it comes down to choosing where we're going to be involved and then and then doing that and not feeling guilty that we can't do everything, but trusting that other people will also be engaged places where we are not. Yeah, I think one of the another one of the kind of key points that I took from Nick Fagg's article that you sent over to me mm -hmm. was how one of the I guess resources of our faith is our hope in mm -hmm. in resurrection, our hope in new life springing forth from old life and from death and to a certain extent, you think about these problems and it's overwhelming and it almost leads to despair, right? Like, oh, these problems are it so can. big and they're so huge. And so also rooting this work in faith seems to me to be a way to be able to be proactive and involved without succumbing to hopelessness as well. Right. Yes very important. I think that's important. I think a lot of people certainly on the maybe on the more progressive side of the things are feeling a little overwhelmed and possibly a little hopeless right now about a lot of different things. So, I think that's something to keep in mind as well that there's that there's hope. There is hope. And it's crucial that we hold on to that hope. The the holidays that we're celebrating right now you know, Christmas is not over. This is the fifth day of Christmas. Right, right. Also, it's also the, the middle of the eight days of Hanukkah yep. and the middle of the week of Kwanzaa. But, but the, the religious festivals in particular really celebrate light. Yeah. And it's not certainly that has to do with the, the darkness of the winter solstice and the, the days becoming long and, and so on. But that's also a, a, a metaphor for the hope that we hold, again, from the Gospel of John. You know, the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That it can seem very dark at times. And when we look at the world around us and some of the ways that we've seriously messed things up, we hold to that idea that the darkness has not overcome the light. And then, of course, there's the, the Jewish proverb, I forget who originally said this, but it's 
better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And so that's maybe our place is to remember the light that has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it, and then to light a candle and join that light. Wow, wonderful. That'll preach. <laughs> <laughs> it could, yes. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention that maybe we didn't get to or that I didn't ask that I should have? No, I think I think that covers everything. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. And I mentioned to this to you before we started recording, but uh, this has opened up some avenues of theological inquiry and thinking for me that I think I'm going to be taking with me and considering in a lot greater depth because it it really resonates. And I think. I think it's reflective of reality, which I think uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. at the beginning, but uh, which Faye did. But theology should reflect reality, and uh, and I really appreciate having kind of a new uh, a new lens with which to to look at some of these important issues. So, thank you so so much. Appreciate your time today. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Views expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official views of the Latter-day Seekers team or of Community of Christ. The music has been provided by Ben Howington. You can find his music at mormonguitar.com.